Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Have you ever wondered why you have so many troubles in your life? Somebody once said, all God's children may not have shoes, but all God's children got troubles. Why are you experiencing those difficulties and adversities and hardships in your life? Back in biblical days, when they wanted to purify gold, they would take the metal and place it into a fire and raise the temperature of that metal. And as they did so, parts of that ore would begin to melt. And then they would pour off the liquid that had melted off the ore. And what they were doing is they were approaching the point that the gold was not mixed with any alloy, but it was pure gold. Because, you see, different metals melt at different temperatures. And then they would put it back in the fire again, heat it up, and again, a part of it would turn to a liquid, and they would pour that off. And then again, they would put it back in, heat it some more, And they would do that process repeatedly until they had melted off all the ore that was not gold. And then they were would said to have pure gold. Now two things were involved in this process. First, there had to be heat. That was a fire. And the second was repetition. In fact, the Psalms talk about silver being refined seven times. And so there was the repetition in the process. Well, God's purifying work in your life is similar to the process of purifying gold. First, there's heat. And the heat in your life is adversity, problems, trials, troubles. And then there's got to be, secondly, repetition. That's the constancy of it. It seems like we're not through one trial until another one starts. We're not through one difficulty until another one starts. We're not through one adversity until another one starts. Now, the problem we face as God is purifying us is that we will get tired and weary and worn out of the constancy of the struggles and the hardships, and we come to the point we just want to give up and quit. That's the danger. God has some encouraging words for us today. If you're at that point that you say, God, I'm just worn out, I'm just tired of the constant difficulties and problems that seem to be at every turn. God's word of comfort and encouragement to us is found over in the book of Hebrews. Take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews, and turn to chapter 11. Because the writer of Hebrews was writing to some Christians who were worn out and tired in their adversity and difficulties and struggles. They were to the point that they were ready to just throw in the towel, just give up and quit. And the writer of Hebrews had some encouraging words for them. And I believe God has these encouraging words for us as well. Now, there's a key word in this passage that we will read that I want you to notice when it shows up. It's the word endure or endurance. That means to keep on going even when the going gets tough. 
It means to keep on going under pressure, even extreme pressure. You don't give up. You don't quit. You keep going. And that's what we need to hear. That when we're tired, when we're weary, when we're ready to give up, God says, no, keep going. And He's going to show us some encouragement to enable us to keep going. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to begin to read in verse 35. And I picked this place to start because he's dealing with those faithful saints in chapter 11, the hall of fame of the faithful. And here in this part of the chapter, he's previously talked about the victories that they've had and that people have been raised from the dead, etc., etc. And then he, without even pausing or, or changing his pace, he begins to talk about those who suffered difficulties and hardships because of their faith. So that's where we're going to pick up. Because you and I don't have a problem when we see the dead being raised. Where we have a problem is when we see people dying and we see people being uh, sawn in two and stuff like that. So we're going to pick up with that place. And I'll ask you to stand as we begin to read in respect for the Word of God. Verse 35, Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves, And holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and that cloud of witnesses are all those saints who suffered and died and were tortured because of their faith, but they continued to persevere. He says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer of Hebrews is picturing this Christian journey as a race. And you've heard me say it's not only a race, it's a marathon. It's not only a marathon, it's an obstacle course marathon. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, did what? Endured the cross. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He endured, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at what Jesus endured. Look at what He went through so that you won't lose heart when you go through difficulties. Verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you, there's that word again, endure. 
God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You may be seated. And may God bless the reading and the hearing and most of all the obeying of His Word. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to you and to me is we need to get the right perspective on our hardships and on our difficulties. He's saying these difficulties, these hardships, these troubles are God's hand of discipline that He is using to purify us. You see, perspective is all important. There is a reason for the constant struggles and pressures and difficulties. It's because God's purifying you. He's putting you in that heat. And He has repeatedly putting you in that heat that He might purify your walk with Him. That He might purify your Christian life. He is training you as a loving father trains his children. In fact, he says in verse 7, it is for this training, it is for this discipline, it is for this purifying that you endure, that you remain steadfast. There's a purpose for it all. It's God's purifying work in our lives. Now, there are five things that I believe the Heavenly Father wants us to see about His purifying work in our lives. First, the Heavenly Father's discipline is primarily for correction and instruction, not for punishment. You see in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. Now, I can say to you without fear of contradiction that God's discipline in the believer's life is primarily for correction and instruction, not punishment, because of the Greek word that's used for discipline. The Greek word that's used for discipline has as its root the word for child. And it carries the idea of training a child, of giving a child instruction. And training. Now, you and I, and in our day, the term discipline carries the connotation of punishment, of spanking, of chastisement. But because of that, a better translation probably of this word would be training. Because we don't associate training as much with, with the spanking or punishment, do we? And so, the word itself... Again, carries the idea not of punishment, but instruction and training. For instance, let me give you two examples. Over in 2 Timothy 3.16, this very same word is used. Here it's translated training. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
For training in righteousness. For discipline in righteousness. That's the same exact word. It's translated discipline in Hebrews. But it's the idea of training. Also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, that same word is translated correcting. Paul tells Timothy, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Alright, now you begin to see that when God disciplines us, He's not punishing us. He is in the process of instructing us in godliness. When God, the Heavenly Father, disciplines us, He is correcting us when we have gotten off His path for our life. When our Heavenly Father disciplines us, He is in the process of training us in righteousness. So when God's disciplining you, He is not out to punish you because you've done something wrong. He is out to train you. He is out to instruct you. He is out to correct you. Now that being the case, when God's hand of discipline is released in your life, you need to be asking the question, okay God, now what's the lesson you're wanting to teach me here? You know, when you find yourself going through difficulty and hardship, don't say, oh God, why are you doing this to me again? It just seems like I can't get out of one problem till another one starts. That's not the attitude. The attitude is, okay God, now I know you got a lesson in this. I know there's something that you want to teach me. Either I'm doing something wrong and you're going to correct me, or there's some training for me in this. Now, Lord, I want to see it. Show me what it is. And so, first of all, God's, the Heavenly Father's, hand of discipline in your life is primarily for correction and instruction, not for punishment. Second truth. The Heavenly Father's discipline comes out of His love for us. Verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Now, the Bible teaches that corrective discipline is a necessary result of true love. Now, you can have punishment without having love. Punishment and love can be separated miles apart. But you cannot have true love without it also being involved with corrective discipline. True love will always involve training and corrective discipline of our children. That's why Proverbs 13.24 can say, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, if you truly love your child, you will discipline them. You will provide them with corrective training with corrective instruction. That's the way you can separate the two. If you don't provide your child with training and instruction, then you really don't love them. The Scripture is clear. You cannot separate true love from corrective discipline. So when God disciplines us, when He seeks to correct us and instruct us, to purify us, it's because He loves us. It's because God loves you that you're experiencing difficulties and hardships. And trials. And I know you're thinking, well, God just don't love me so much then. Right? Just like your parent used to tell you when they used to spank you, you know, this is hurting me more than this hurting you. And none of us believed it at the time. But when you became a parent, you understood, didn't you? Well, you may find it hard to believe that it is because God loves you that He releases His hand of discipline in your life, but nevertheless, it is true. True love administers discipline. Now, it's so important for us to remember this. 
And I will grant you, you need to take this by faith. And you need to take it by faith when you're not going through the hardships and the difficulties. And you need to let it settle in your mind and in your spirit that God is disciplining me, not because He hates me, but because He loves me. Not because He's out to get me, but because He desires to purify me in my walk with Him. Because if you forget that, when you're going through His discipline, you become bitter. You become resentful. You become angry with God. Why is this happening to me, God? And He's saying, because I love you. And because I want to purify your life like gold is purified. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be callous to God's discipline. Don't fail to realize the real purpose behind His discipline and the motivation behind His discipline, which is His love. When we realize that it is God's love, then we can accept it gladly and even be blessed by it. Now, what brings God's hand of discipline in your life? Now, there are several things, and these, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list. First, disobedience to His Word. As a loving parent, I hope you discipline your children when they're disobedient to your Word, because the Heavenly Father disciplines you and me when we're disobedient to His Word. When He tells us something that we need to be doing in His Word and we don't do it, you can expect His hand of discipline to be released in your life to bring you back to obedience to His Word. That's the second reason that God disciplines us. And that's when we fail to correctly judge the sin that's in our life. You remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we had the Lord's Supper. Some of those people at Corinth were not judging their sin in their lives correctly, and they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and God's hand of discipline was being released in their life. And so God will release His hand of discipline in our life to show us sin that's in our life that we have not rightly judged as sin. I remember in my own life uh, this happened. Uh, it's happened a number of times, but one in particular that I'm going to share with you this morning. Again, back when I was pastoring in Phoenix City, Alabama, that was the first church I pastored, and we had uh, uh, two children, uh, Tiffany and Lindsay, and Blair was on the way. And I remember when uh, we found out that we were going to be having Blair, uh, again, uh, I began to say, Lord, uh, uh, how, how are we going to be able to afford this? And, and uh, the copay, I knew kind of what the copay was going to be, and, uh, and I tried to figure out how we were going to pay. And, and, and you say, well, didn't you have that same issue going with Lindsay when she was born? Yeah, I did. You know, I just never learned. Maybe that's why I had six kids. The Lord kept wanting to teach me. Because uh, I thought I'd learned. And then when Brittany came along, she was born eight weeks early and had to be in neonatal intensive care for two weeks, and that took all my savings. So <laughs> it seems that God uses the childbirth to show me a lesson about trusting Him for finances. But I was having trouble figuring out where in the world I was going to have the money to pay uh, for her to be born. Uh, but I kind of had it worked out, I thought. You know, if I really watched everything, it could work out. Well, Blair was born in August, uh, and so we're talking around June, July. And if you've ever been in Columbus, Georgia, Fort Benning, Phoenix City, Chattahoochee Valley in the summer. There's no hotter place, I don't believe, in God's green earth than there in the summertime. It is hot. 
Well, here we are talking about the end of June, 1st of July, and the air conditioner interior's car goes out. Well, being the sensitive guy that I am, I said, well, just roll down your windows. <laughs> you know, I was, my car was a straight, and she couldn't drive a straight, so there wasn't a choice of trading cars with her. I said, just roll your windows down. She said, I got two babies in here I'm driving around. I'm seven months pregnant, and you think I'm going to drive in a hot car? So after her persuasive words, I began to say, okay, all right, all right, all right. So here I go now. I had my budget worked out. I could afford this baby because I wasn't going to spend anything on anything other than what we just had to do. And here we had an air conditioner break down in the car. So I said, now, wait a minute. Well, I had a neighbor who uh, was a repairman for Sears, and he was a jack of all trades. I mean, he could do, like Ron Hogwarts, he could do a little everything when it came to mechanics. And so I told him about the problem, and he said, oh, I, I, believe, I believe I can help you fix it. I believe we can do that ourselves. And he said, probably we just need a compressor. And I said, well, how much does those cost? And I forget right now, but I think it was a couple hundred dollars. And I thought, oh, man, that goes my... How am I going to pay for the baby then? But I said, okay, okay, we've got to have it. Terry said, she's told me we've got to have it. So he goes out and buys the compressor, and I pay him for it. Puts it on, and it doesn't work. He said, well, I think the dryer is probably bad, too. We need to replace the dryer. Now, folks, I thought a dryer was something you had in your house that you put clothes in. I didn't know you had something on an air conditioner called a dryer. And he said, yeah, we probably get a new dryer. So I said, well, how much is that going to be? And so he gave me a price, and I thought, oh, man. I kind of moped around for a couple of days said, all right, get it. So he put the dryer on, and then he said, well, you know, that's not doing anything. He said, I, I, I think we're going to have to get a clutch. A clutch. I thought that's what was on the car. But no air conditioners have clutches. So he said, no, we need to get a clutch. So I said, how much is that going to be? And he told me, and I said, oh, me. And then we got the clutch and put it on there, and it still didn't work. He said, well... I hope we wouldn't have to do this, but I think we're going to need an evaporator. I said, an evaporator? How much is that? And he told me, and I finally said, Lord, I yield. You're getting my attention. All right, I'm going to have to trust you to provide what we need to pay for this birth that's coming up. I confess, I have been looking to myself and not trusting you to provide what we need. I've been putting my trust in that bank account. So I confessed. I repented, and the next day, a preacher friend of mine called me up and said, I want you to come out and do a revival for us in a couple of weeks. And God said, see, I can provide for you anytime I get ready. But you see, God was using that adversity, those difficulties, to get my attention and to show me the sin that was in my life. And so when you start going through these hardships and difficulties, start saying, Lord... (laughs) Is there something I'm missing here? Is there something going on? You're teaching me, showing me? Third thing, straying off God's path for your life. You stray off God's path. He will bring you back out of love. And He will bring you back in a way <laughs> that you can't get away. And sometimes the hardships and the difficulties, maybe through some physical problem, He will bring you back. David said over in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. David said, man, I was going astray, but then God afflicted me and He brought me back. You see, sometimes God's afflictions knock us down. And when they knock us down, we look up and we see God and we go to Him and He ministers to us. The fourth reason God's hand of discipline will be released in our life is because of the impurities in our life. 
You see, we need to be like Christ. And there may be in our lives a lot of impatience. And so God wants to build patience in your life. And so He'll bring you into difficulties and adversities to get you to trust Him to provide the patience that you need that you might grow in patience. Whatever the impurities might be in your life, He keeps putting us in that heat repeatedly to burn off that dross, to burn off the impurities that our faith might be refined. Third truth. The Heavenly Father's discipline is a sign that we are born again children of God. Verse 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. It's that simple. If you're a true son and daughter of God, you're going to experience His disciplined hand in your life. He is going to be training you in righteousness. He's going to be correcting you when you get off His path for your life. And if you're not seeing God's hand of discipline, then you need to say, Hey, I must not be a child of God. God doesn't discipline those that are not His children. But when you're experiencing His hand, His loving hand of discipline, you can rejoice because that's a sign that you are indeed a child of God. That you are saved. You can live in disobedience and not see God's hand of discipline. Then you need to be very concerned about your spiritual condition. Fourth truth. The Heavenly Father's discipline is painful, not joyful for the moment. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, you may have been thinking, how does God discipline us? How does He release His hand of discipline into our lives? Well, over in the Scriptures, we see over in Second Chronicles chapter 6, God was telling the nation of Israel when they got in disobedience to Him and He released His hand of discipline in their lives, these are the things they could expect to see. He says, If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, so defeat by an enemy was a sign of God's disciplined hand. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, so a drought was God's hand of discipline. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plagues or whatever sickness there is, and so the hand of discipline God says in the Old Testament was sickness, mildew, locusts, blight, famine, pestilence. We saw over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 a week or so ago, that those in Corinth, his hand of discipline meant some of them were weak. Some of them were sick. So sickness was a part of his hand of discipline. Some even died as a result of his hand of discipline. Now, God's way of discipline us are innumerable. I could not give you every way God will discipline his children if we stood here from now until this time tomorrow and I just continually gave you examples. Because they're innumerable. Through personal problems family problems, financial problems, work problems, problems with friends, persecution by people. I mean, you could go on and on and on. But when God wants to get our attention, He generally deals with our health, our wealth, or our family. 
But though they are innumerable, and I could not give you every example of how God might discipline you, two things are constant. It's painful, and it's not joyful. The Scripture says it's painful, and it's not joyful. So when God releases His hand of discipline in our life, it's going to hurt. But He is hurting us because He loves us. Because that's what it takes. And I think God in His love starts off His discipline gently in our lives. But if we keep on resisting, if we keep on being callous to His discipline, then He increases the pressure. Now, God doesn't give any more pressure than we need. But He will give every bit as much as we need. And some of us are hard-headed and it takes more pressure than others. Fifth truth. The Heavenly Father's discipline can result in our good and our right living before God, our holiness. Verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's desire in His discipline for us is our good. It is our benefit. And three benefits are listed in this passage. First, that we might share in His holiness. That we might walk as Jesus walked. That we might live according to God's way, not the world's way. You see, God's discipline breaks us away from the world's way. God's discipline in our lives breaks away worldliness in our lives. It helps us to reevaluate our priorities and determine what our priorities should be. So it's that we might share in His holiness. Secondly, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is right living before God. Living as God would have you to live. Living in obedience to His Word. And then thirdly, that we will submit to God. Look in verse 9. He says, Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our heavenly, our earthly parents disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we not submit to God? And so when we're going about our rebellious way, doing our rebellious thing, God will use His discipline to break us that we might submit ourselves to His way and His will for our lives. But notice the phrase in verse 11, to those who have been trained by it. You see, it's not automatic. The peaceful fruit of righteousness is not an automatic result of God's discipline in your life. It comes to those who have been trained by God's loving hand of discipline. It comes to those who have received God's hand of discipline in the right spirit, in the right attitude in their lives. Now, there's a book written by a fellow by the name of Bellheimer. Don't waste your sorrows. And he's talking about suffering. And he says, you know, you're going to suffer because God loves you. Don't waste them. You waste them when you get angry with God and you get bitter with God and you get resentful. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't waste your sufferings. Learn from them. Benefit from them. Be trained by them that they might yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness and you might grow into holiness in your practical living before God. How then are we trained by God's discipline when we willingly accept it from His loving hand? When we seek to learn the lesson that He's desiring to teach us? 
When the Heavenly Father's discipline causes us to judge sin rightly in our lives and we repent and forsake that sin. When it causes us to recognize our total dependence on Him for all that we need, then it's used of God to build us up into the character of Christ. Now look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Now that he's dealt with God's loving hand of discipline, you remember he's talking to Christians that are tired and they're weary and they're ready to give up. And then he goes right into verse 13, Therefore, because God's hand of discipline in your life is for your good, it's to purify you, it's because He loves you, it's to prove that you are a child of His, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. What does He mean? He's picking up on that race metaphor that he gave in verse 1. Let us therefore run the race with endurance. Now you've all run in races of some length at some time in your life. You've seen people do it. You know when you start off the race? You start off your hands up here, right? But when you really get tired and you're about to give out, what happens to your hands? You're just trying to get there the best way you can and your hands just are flapping. They're just so tired. That's what he means when he said, now wait now. He says, strengthen those hands. Pull them back up. Don't give up and quit. And what happens? Your hands go, and then the next thing is your knees go. And he says, strengthen those knees. Strengthen those hands. Keep going. Don't quit. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. Don't fall in the holes. Don't get sidetracked. But keep going. Endure. Don't give up. Don't quit. There's a book about life in the zoo. And in this book, the writer describes the birth of a baby giraffe. He says, when the baby giraffe is about to be born, his front hooves and his head come out first. And then with one good push, he falls ten feet and lands right on his back on the ground. And then he turns himself over with his legs tucked up under him. And he shakes off the vestiges of the birth fluids. And he looks up at the world. And then Mama Giraffe comes over and she stands right over him. She looks down at him for a minute. And then she takes her leg and kicks him and knocks him over. And if he doesn't get up, she goes over and kicks him again. And she kicks him again. And she kicks him again. And he gets tired of struggling trying to get up, so she kicks him some more to spur him on. And finally, baby giraffe manages to get up on those old wobbly legs and stand there. And then Mama Giraffe comes over to him and she knocks him down. Now, why does she do that? Because she wants him to remember how he got up. So he'll get up again. Because in the jungle, it's imperative that he get up quickly So he can escape the lions and the cheetahs and the tigers that feast on giraffes. Baby giraffes. Now maybe you feel like God's knocking you over and knocking you over and knocking you over. And finally you manage to get up only to get knocked over again. Now why is He doing that? Because He wants you to remember how you got up. How you looked to Him and how you trusted Him. And how He was there for you. Let's pray. Father, may Your Spirit take Your Word and encourage Your people. May we be encouraged to keep going even when we feel like we're being knocked down over and over and over. Because You are doing it through Your love and in Your love and for the purpose 
of purifying us and yielding in us that fruit of righteousness. May we be encouraged. In Jesus' name, Amen.